HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. This is John Gallagher from LearningHerbs.com. My guest today joining us from her home at the Sage Mountain Herbal Retreat Center in Vermont is Rosemary Gladstar. And the class she's sharing tonight is Wild Greens and Spring Remedies. Rosemary Gladstar is the author of many books, including Rosemary Gladstar's Medicinal Herbs, A Beginner's Guide, and Herbal Healing for Women. Rosemary has been inspiring herbalists for nearly 40 years with the herbal schools, conferences, organizations, and companies she's founded, from the California School of Herbal Studies to traditional medicinals to United Plant Savers. And one of the conferences she founded is the International Herb Symposium, which is happening June 28th to the 30th near Boston at Wheaton College. And uh, we are here to celebrate this great event tonight. So welcome, Rosemary. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And so, hey, how, how's it going up there in Vermont? Is it quite, uh, we're talking about spring tonight, but um, <laughs> has it spring there yet? <laughs> oh, God, it makes me chuckle. Um, it is spring. You know, our days are longer, the weather's warming up, but up on the mountain where I live, we still have snow outside, so, you know, I'm still yearning for those early spring greens that most of the country is out already digging and harvesting, but, um, yeah, when it comes here, it's very riotous. It just comes full-blown, and it just takes over, but it's slow. So, yeah, I mean, I think for all of us who have gone through a long winter, just like our ancestors, we are hungry, both on a physical and emotional level, to be out there with our green friends, um, and I think they're that way with us as well. It's just, it's a traditional time when herbalists would go out and start to collect those greens and make, you know, cook with them, certainly, and make our remedies. Um, and it's been something that we shared with our ancestors around the world. So it's always, you know, just personally, it's such a great feeling to go out there in the early spring days and see what's poking up and to nibble on the littlest things and then to watch them grow and um, and then watch them just sort of carpet the earth. So it's an incredible time of renewal and rejuvenation and rebirth and cleansing. I know some herbalists don't like that thought of, you know, the, the cleansing, but Really, um, when you look at all of nature, both the spring and the fall are a time in, in the natural cycles of things that we kind of let go of things, we clean, we, we um, maybe eat a little lightly as our bodies are naturally cleansing. Animals do the same thing. So it's not a matter of thinking of things as being toxic or dirty or, or any, in any means like that. It's just a matter of, um, again, just observing the cycles of nature and utilizing those natural things around us to enhance our life force. So we'll talk a little bit about that also. I also wanted to, in this time that we have together, I wanted to share a little bit about some of the ethics and uh, considerations about going out and harvesting so that, um, you know, we, we share just that ethical responsibility we have to our green community. But I think we'll just start by sharing, um, just looking out our yards and seeing what might be poking up. As I said, right now I'm looking out at snowbanks. But I grew up on the West Coast, and I've spent a lot of time traveling in parts of the world. So, And I also, every spring when things finally do come up here, I'm out there looking at them. So I have a really good idea what's coming up in your backyard anyway. And almost everything that's coming up right now, both the weedy species and the native species, make fabulous medicine and food for us. And so we'll start by just looking in our backyards. And so for most of us, dandelions poking up, it's one of those new greens that come up uh, shortly after the weather warms and the snows have melted. And 
I would imagine that most of the listeners are really familiar with that plant because it's just one of the number one best plants on the planet. <laughs> I remember not so long ago, it was a few years ago, we were doing one of our international earth symposiums and we were following along in the heels of this brilliant botanist and elder from China who was highly regarded by all these international herbalists. And she was uh, a professor at Harvard and also um, she was also the curator of the Arnold Arboretum. So she was giving us a tour through this magnificent collection of plants. And when we were all done, there were about 40 of the teachers standing around her. And uh, Cascade Anderson happened to ask her, of all these plants, Dr. Who, that you showed us in your garden, which is your very favorite? And without missing a beat, Dr. Who replied, why, dandelion, of course. <laughs> and that's how important it is, both as a, as a food and a medicine. And, you know, I would say right now to focus on its uh, food properties, like it's nutritionally dense, just rich in vitamin A, that's healing to all of our, healthful and healing to all of our membranes. Um, it's abundant, so we never have to worry about over-harvesting it or decreasing the population. Partly that is because it has a, mag a really uh, magnificent, strong um, propagation method and seed method. So it's, it's ensuring its vitality by being very adaptive to where it grows, very adaptive to the type of soil it grows on. I wish, it reminds me a lot of how white people are. You know, it can just move in anywhere and colonize and... Um, but it also is a very beautiful plant, and it brings cheer. I think in the, the plant signature of it is that it's cheerful. So it, after a long winter, a long winter of rain if you live on the west coast, or snow if you live on the east, and anywhere in between, if you live between, um, our, our bodies and our souls are hungering for that bright bit of hmm. sunshine. So on that level, it's just good to go out and eat. But it, you know, as far as uh, nutrient-dense properties of dandelion, it's so great. So abundant, available, um, you know, it's, all, it's a bitter. It's a, it's a wonderful bitter, and it stimulates digestion. The bitters are um, so needed by our body, especially our bodies here in the West where we're so used to sweet and salty. Bitter often doesn't taste good to us. For many parts of the world, bitter is just as pleasant as, say, sweet is. You know, they look forward to the taste of bitter. And their they may not recognize this so much intellectually, but their um, but their bodies know that that substance, that bitter substance, the chemical con constituents of bitter, are necessary for good digestion, for moving things through the body, for energy in the body. So dandelion is a really great herb for restoring vitality and energy um, in the deepest level to us. So. It's such a great herb. I mean, you can't speak about it enough. As Doctor Who said, "What's your favorite plant? Why, dandelion for certain." And <laughs> mine <laughs> too. Agree? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. And of course, you don't want to ignore the root. The root, especially this time of year, is still fairly tender. Um, it's still, you know, it, it will be bitter, but not overly bitter as it gets when it develops, uh, as it ages through the summertime. So this is a really good time to be out digging those dandelion roots and harvesting your leaves and flowers. There's a, many people are trained that when a plant's in flower, most of its um, energy, most of its vitality is in the flower. So if you're harvesting roots and leaves, it's better to get them before their flower. But certain plants like dandelion and many of the mints, um, you don't want to pay attention to those rules. If, if you paid attention to that rule with dandelion, you'd never be able to harvest because it's in flower at least three-fourths of a year. Um, but more, it's, you're really looking more than you know any particular rule is when 
the part of the plant that you want is strongest. And really, dandelion is going to be very strong, very potent, even when it's in flower. So um, I would say the ideal might be if you can gather your roots when the plant isn't in flower, but really it's quite fine even in flower to go out and dig some and, and saute them, add them to your carrots, add them to your soups. Um, I like to pickle them, actually. It's mm. one of the ways I really like the dandelion leaves and the, the roots is to pickle them, which I'll talk about methods of preparation later. I, I love, one of my favorites is when Kimberly, uh, this the other night, I, I'm eating some greens, some steamed greens, and just stir-fried yeah. some little bits of roots and threw it in there, and I just love that flavor. I know, it's wonderful, yeah. And, you're, and your body, your taste buds, you train them. Like, you know, the first time people taste it, coffee, for instance, it wasn't going to taste good, you know, it was, it's very bitter and acrid, and um, so people get used to these flavors, and of course, getting used to a dan cup of dandelion is, or a pot of dandelion soup is much better than getting used to that acrid bitterness of coffee, I would believe, anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then plantain is another one, of course, it's just, uh, a cousin, uh, not, not related necessarily to dandelion, but always found in the same kind of habitats. As abundant, again, it has a seed head that produces just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of seeds, and it, it has the ability to survive in lots of different habitats, which I always think is very important when we're harvesting things to, to think about the energetics of the plant. The old way that people observed that was, we called it the doctor of signature, and mm -hmm. it's kind of been simplified to say, you know, like, well, a plant looks like, you know, like a lung, so therefore it's good for lungs, or it has spots on the leaves, so you know, therefore it's good for spots on the skin. I'm <laughs> just joking with that. But, but it was much deeper than that. It was observing the entire energetics of the plant. It wasn't so much visually how it looked, um, though, there, though there might be mirrors of the human body in that. It was more really where it was growing, how it was growing, you know, the, you know whether it grew early in the season, whether it was robust. There was a whole system, and it was developed over really many, many lifetimes as people observed these plants. It, we still have those skills in us. We've, we've rather forgotten them because we spend so much time, you know, looking at little tiny computer screens or little tiny words mm -hmm. and not looking at the bigger picture of nature. So, um, you know, it's, it's just important to take that time. And that's why going out now and harvesting and being with the plants, they're always reminding us, always teaching us. So plantain also has a very robust energy and it's very prolific. And it's another one of those plants that, we don't have to worry about over-harvesting. <laughs> in fact, I think it, it does well what, when we use it. In fact, when you look at both dandelion and plantain and most of the plants I'm going to mention right now, they position themselves near people and oftentimes in areas where we've done major disturbances. So you'll find them, you know, next to parking lots and, and old empty lots and you'll find them in soil that's been plowed over, etc. They like disturbance. They like uh, things that have been changed. They're not like hungering for the old growth forest and for undisturbed territory. So in, in that sense, they're also really good for a lot of our common everyday illnesses. You know, they've evolved, we've evolved in relationship to the medicine of these plants and perhaps in some way that we're not aware of, they in relationship to us as well. Hmm. So I think that, you know, when we talk about plantain, we we think of it as the primary boo-boo plant. You know, children right. learn it that way, right? Your kids probably mm -hmm. learn it that way. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and it's so effective for that. It's kind of one of the very first plants that the mother or the father or the grandparents, you know, use on their grandkids. And, you know, you get a bee sting and you put a little plantain poultice on and 
you know, within about an hour, sometimes even sooner than that, the pain's gone, where, you know, these things generally aren't a problem for most people unless you have a severe allergic reaction, but they can be painful for a full day, sometimes up to two or three days. So you put a plantain poultice on and it's gone in 20 minutes. Kids are really impressed by that. And it's often the first herb that people use in their salves. It was my first herb, um, one of my first herbs, and it still is one of the herbs I always go to. It's a very, very powerful detoxifier to the system. The old term with that be, would be blood purifier. It really altered the condition of the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd like to mention, you know, we think of it normally for things like, you know, wounds and cuts, insect bites, bee stings, et cetera. But um, I, when my husband was bit by a brown recluse spider bite a couple of years ago, it was the primary herb I used. And he had full recovery. It was a very severe bite with enormous wow. amount of swelling. We also used, in all honesty, we also used, um, I had a, an antibiotics, but when the antibiotics weren't working as well as they should, then we went ahead and I was using the plantain, but I upped the plantain and I also used um, another herb, uh, a resin called dragon's blood that my friend Rocio had given to me. So um, that was a, a really great you know, example of the power of plantain. But also plantain is a really good to put in food. It's a little tough and fibrous, and again, a lot of times people will go bitter, bitter. Right. And, um, you know, but again, it's, it's one of those good bitters. It's a good bitter for us. And should I just keep going, John, on some yeah, of these Yeah, well, you have this great list, and I just think they're just great ones, and so many of these are grow all over. So dandelion, yeah, plantain, and yeah. what else? And, and maybe I won't speak quite so long of each of them. You know, that's yeah. the thing about these plants. I'll just touch on them. But, um, and I did, I did think of those plants that were going to be found everywhere. Um, as, soon as, as soon as the snows, snows melt, we'll find them up here, too. So I'll, I'll just speak a little bit quicker about each one of them. One is self-heal, Prunella vulgaris. It's way underused in our Materia Medica, but it's one of my beloved plants, and in fact, it's always been a plant ally of mine since I was very small. It's a plant that you find in all lawns. If you let your lawn go, within a week or two, you'll see that beautiful little mint, Hmm. typical purple flowers, that, um, you know, square stem, opposite alternating leaves. They're all mint have, and um, that's a little self-heal. And, you know, even that title should make us sit back and go, any plant that was titled self-heal has to mean has to mean that it was really valuable. Hmm. And again, you know, it's a nice little herb that you can steam, you can add the herbs to salads, you can, you know, saute it. It's tasty, um, but primarily it's just an amazing medicine for the immune system, for colds and flus, for the lymphatic system. Um, I think we just need to explore the use of it more. There's a wonderful herbalist up in Canada named Carol Gagnon who teaches at a number of the conferences and stuff. She's a, a young, brilliant herbalist, and she's been using a lot of self-heal in her practice and is kind of, you know, bringing it back to people's consciousness. So, And then nettle, of course. Well, well nettle, I just have oh. a yeah, self-heal. I mean, when, when you're using it, um, so we're just talking about, uh, do you think it's a good tonic, like a regular long-term, like just a tea, since we're talking the mint family, or would you add some to a nourishing infusion regularly, or is it more, you know, or is it, is it more of like a long-term strengthener, is it something that you take short-term? Well, you can use it every, you know, you could use it every day. It's one of those herbs you can throw into your teas with red clover and nettle and alfalfa and uh-huh. chickweed. Definitely you can use that, but it's also, it's one of those crossover plants. You can use it as a tonic. 
um, as a rejuvenating herb, but it's also a wonderful medicine for specific illnesses, you know, given it in uh, very specified dosages over a period of time. And primarily for things like for the immune system and the lymphatics, um, for colds and flus, it's really excellent. You'll find literature about it in the older herb books, like the textbooks that were written in the 1800s and the early 1900s, but you usually don't find it in the modern books. Oh, right. Um, so, and okay. then my, the next plant on my list is absolutely one of my favorites. It's another of my allied plants, and I think it's, you know, kind of become one of these very well-known herbs again is nettle. Mm, I've been eating and, nettle soup all week. Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. I just, <laughs> you know, how I have my nettles, how I get my fresh nettles is, in the spring of last year, I pickle uh, several quarts of them. I learned this from one of my early teachers back in like the 1970s, a, a man named Dr. Sliebel Brooks. And he would, he would take fresh nettle and he would layer it in both olive oil or vinegar, whichever. You can do both. And then he would just put it in a cool place. And then the following year, when you're just craving fresh greens, you have this delicious nettle. And after it sits in that in that, you know, after it infuses in either the olive oil or the vinegar, it loses its sting. You have to leave it in there for a little while. But So then I can just eat that, but I'm all out of that now, so I'm mm. waiting for our fresh nettle. <laughs> but nettle is another one of those just amazing food herbs. You know, it's high in iron, high in calcium, incredibly rich in trace minerals that are missing in people's diets. Um, and then it's, of course, and so it's just, a, and it's a tasty green. You know, once you steam it, which... I think that's the only counterindication, the only warning that comes with it is you have to steam it, otherwise you're going to get stung. Right. Um, there are a few brave-hearted herbalists like myself who occasionally eat it raw, but it's to show off, you know. And, <laughs> and I do know occasional few show-off herbalists who have gotten welts in their mouth from eating it. So, <laughs> you know what it is, is that it, anybody can do it, but um, the point is why. But it has little hairs on it that, that are like needle-like projections, and they're filled with formic acid. It's actually the same acid that's in bee stings in ants, in ant bites. And so if when that brushes up against you, it's released, and you get these big welts. So um, when, you, when you take nettle and you crush it or you, you, know, you roll it really tightly and you break all those hairs up, you release that acid and you don't get stung by it. So... Um, Anyway, but nettle is also one of those herbs that crosses over from being a delicious food to a specific medicine. So for for a food, though, how simple is it to to eat it? Like, uh, what's a way? It's just the simplest way you can imagine. Just uh, having mm. some if you find it. Yeah, you know, my I can I have so many recipes. My very favorite though is to go out and pick a large, like say a large grocery bag, because it will reduce just like spinach. It reduces down to this tiny amount you know, like a two or three servings. So you pick a big grocery bag of the, ideally the young tips. And you'll usually hear most people will warn against using it when it gets older because um, some of the chemicals can get pretty strong on it and it can be a little irritating. But really, I've spent months at a time living on nothing but wild foods. I've done long backpack trips and long horseback trips and mm-hmm. I've eaten nothing but wild food and I've eaten old nettle and I've never, ever had a problem. And when my nettle gets old here, old meaning that it starts to go into seed and stuff. I've eaten it up here a lot too because our winters are so long that I want to take as much of this wild stuff into my body as I possibly can. So, but, but the idea is to pick those fresh tips and then you want to steam it and you steam it well. If you're, if you're cooking up a big shopping bag full, you're going to want to toss it a little bit inside because if it packs down in, the, in your steamer, 
the inside sometimes doesn't steam well, and there's a possibility that formic acid is just hiding in there waiting to get you. So, <laughs> so stir it around a little bit, make sure it's thoroughly cooked, and then what I like to do is just marinate it with just a little bit of fresh lemon and olive oil and feta cheese. It's just nothing better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you can take that steamed nettle, you can put it in omelets, you can put it in your uh, roll-ups, you know, those wonderful roll-up sandwiches. And a, a, another famous dish that I love to make, and I've been making it for, I think, the last 30 years, is like the Greek spinach pie, spanakopita, uh-huh. but instead of spinach, I use the, the nettle. That, that's my annual birthday dish. Uh, <laughs> net, we call it uh, nettle copita. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And then there's also, this. I love doing this for people because they're just shocked. But you can make um, what my friend Janice Schofield calls nesto, fresh nettle pesto, mm. where you take the fresh nettle and you put that in the blender with, you know, you take a traditional pesto remedy recipe, but instead of using basil, you're going to use fresh nettle. And you use it raw, so of course people are going, what, I'm eating raw nettle? But again, because you, you're breaking up those hairs and you break them up quite well in the blender, there's no possibility of getting stung. So you're making a delicious herb paste, um, and you can eat just tons of nettle that way. And you get, you actually, you know, for people who are coming into this time of year and they're feeling a little congested, a little worn out, a little lack of vitality, this is a great remedy. You know, any of these herbs that we're just speaking about, but even just nettle by itself will revitalize your, your, your whole physical being. Hmm. And on the deepest level, it revitalizes our soul, too, because... Those plants have this, I would just, I don't know how to say this in the, the most incredible way that everybody gets it, but it's almost like every cell in our body is a receptor site for these herbs. You know, we have evolved in relationship to them for so many centuries that our bodies just recognize them. You sit down with a cup of nettle, self-heal, you know, dandelion tea, and your body is just leaning towards it like a pendulum, you know, going in the right direction. So, um, and then just a few more that we'll mention chickweed. This might be a little early for chickweed. I don't know. Have you seen any, John? Any <laughs> <garden here? laughs> oh, yeah, chickweed's been. Well, I left because uh, I we just bought a house in. Uh, we, we haven't moved yet, but in uh, in Port Townsend, right in Washington. Oh, beautiful area. And um, and so we in 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 January when we bought the house, we were looking around at the gardens and and. And the herb gardens that were there, and there were herb gardens. It was amazing. And there's chickweed growing in January. So, oh, so, my but uh, but a lot of people would like be going through the house, going like, you know, what kind of windows does it have? What kind of heat? And what did the condition? And meanwhile, Kimberly and I are out like, well, look at this chickweed. We'll take it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's worth buying a house for a good stand of chickweed. There, there needs to be a, a, a house hunting show like these shows they have on TV, where there's herbalists going around finding houses based on what's Weeds are growing in the gardens. <laughs> yeah, really, I agree. It'll happen. So, you know, it's, that's an interesting thing when you say that chickweed you found in January because if you look at the energetics of chickweed, mm. it looks actually like a very delicate and fragile plant. It's, you know, it's kind of, it grows along the ground. It's full of water. It's very delicate little flowers. The botanical name Stellaria medea means the little star, you know, and everything about it seems delicate, but it's actually really a tough plant, and it can survive under snow and then just start out fresh in the springtime. Up in our climate, because we have such long winters and it gets so cold, it does die, but it self-sows and it comes up again. Um, and, then, and then again, because it's so delicate, people will just think, well, you know, it's not a very powerful plant, but it, it's one of those plants that has 
this very soft power. It's very gentle and sweet and delicious tasting. It's a very powerful plant. It's one of the best plants we have as an emollient for skin rash, really bad skin rashes and for um, very dry skin and for eye agitation, irritation, for actually um, any kind of irritation that has to do with the membranes. Chickweed is going to be soothing both internally and externally. And uh, it has infection-fighting properties, so it's, you know, again, it's benign and sweet-looking, but it's a very strong herb. And it's another one of the herbs that we use frequently in salves, you know, for rashes and infections. Um, but it is a delicious herb, and if you get it young before it starts getting too leggy, it's a wonderful addition to salads, and you can steam it. It kind of loses its um, oomph when you steam it. You know, it's so watery anyway. It'll cook down to just like a, you take a big pot of it, it cooks down to like two tablespoons. But, you know, you can eat those two tablespoons and be very nourished. <laughs> so um, a beautiful, incredible plant. Mm-hmm. For most eye infections, it's also really um, has a strong affinity for uh, children and skin problems and little babies and stuff. You'll find it a lot in, along with uh, calendula and diaper rashes for diaper rashes and baby issues and things. So. And then uh, the mighty mallow family, the Malviaceae family, which is such a benign family. You know, it's one of the only families that I know of that has no toxic members, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because almost in every family you have the black sheep. You know, you have somebody that's toxic or counterindicative. It makes the family interesting. <laughs> Oftentimes they're the most interesting character in the family. But um, in this family, they're all medicinal and all edible. And so, uh, you know, you have, especially on the West Coast, you have all those weedy mallows, the cheese mallows, the, you know, those beautiful big mallows that are growing in all the empty lots in the towns and, you know, old dried up fields that have been plowed and not, you know, renourished. You go out there and there's mallow reclaiming, rebuilding, and healing the soil. Um, and it's just delicious. Even when it gets old, it's good. You know, it, it's, it's a mucilage. It's very soothing. And because it's, a, it's very rich in that mucilaginous constituent, mm. it um, has uh, sugar molecules in it that are sweet. Um, of course, it's not sweet like sugar, but it's sweet like plants. It's got that. And so very good for us and very delicious. It used to be one of the favorite. I had this, like, for some of favorite herbs that I would use in every cooking dish. So I would make cashew mallow soup and, you know, these, oh. these wonderful stews and wild herb casseroles, and mallow was always one of the ingredients in them. Um, we don't have as many varieties on the West Coast. We do have a couple that are quite prolific here, but some of my favorite weedy species of the mallow are not, they're not out here. So um, you're lucky out there, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have as much uh, wild ones as down in, like, California. Yeah. Right yeah. Where it's a little drier. And I think maybe that's the thing. They provide some soothing energy for a drier for the place. Yeah. But be. up here in the total wet, you know, at least in the western Cascade area, it's... Uh, you don't That's, need more slime up we there. We don't need any more. we got enough slugs now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, to remember that the flowers are also edible. They're as edible as the leaves are. They, they have a mucilage in them, too. And they're, they're a kissing cousin of hibiscus. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's a, a beautiful blue malva that um, comes from France. You have to get the seeds. But it's one of my favorite um, favorite plants to use in teas, the blue malva, like when I'm making a flower tea, because the blue malva turns the water blue. Mm. Um, it's very beautiful. 
And I just learned something about that. You know, I've, I've been demonstrating making, you know, this wonderful, like, evening tea with a relaxing tea, like with lemon balm and chamomile roses and, you know, all those beautiful, fragrant herbs that help us relax. And I always use malva in it because it's soothing and also just because of that beautiful blue. And then I would demonstrate it. I'd pour the boiling water over it and I'd let it seep and it would turn that beautiful blue for, I would always say, it just lasts for a few minutes. But this summer I was making some. I did a cold water infusion and the blue stayed. It didn't go away. I learned something new. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, that's cool. So, and of course, miner's lettuce. Now, mm. again, miner's lettuce we don't have out on the west on the East Coast, but it's prolific right now. It's an early green that's just coming up. When I was a child, we'd go out and pick this all the time, you know, and just bring it into the house and eat it. And whenever I'd see it when I was hiking and out in the woods, oh, it was just, it's so delicious. It's we have so a lot wonderful. of that here, yeah. Yeah. And it also has that little cape of flowers, you know, it has the cape and then the little uh, stalk of flowers, which are very edible. So it can dress a salad up. It can make, you know, plain green salads look so beautiful with those white delicious flowers it's become quite gourmet i remember on the west coast when tim blakely who was a gardener at the california school of Herbal studies he started supplying uh, some of the fancy restaurants in san francisco with all these wild greens the common greens like this and uh miner's lettuce is one of the most popular oh so. yeah you go to salad mixes i've gone to salad mixes at fancy <laughs> markets and stuff and you look in there and it's lots of chickweed in it so. yeah that's so true <laughs> Um, and then just a couple more, you know, I wanted to mention that all throughout the country, whether you're from the south or the north or the west or in between, there's a version of wild ramps or wild onions. There's the nodding wild onion that's prolific out on the on the west coast, a beautiful, um, delicious smelling onion. There's two things I just want to say about that family is one is that there are some toxic members in that family. When you're digging those little bulbs, you, you need to be careful that you're really getting a wild onion or a wild garlic. Um, it's pretty easy to tell because they'll smell really strongly. If you're picking something that has a little white bulb and has those long blade-like um, onion mm-hmm. leaves or, or allium leaves, um, and it doesn't smell really like an onion or a garlic, you want to avoid that for certain. And then also, and of course that goes in the bigger context, context of saying that you never want to pick anything unless you really know what you're picking because there's definitely a few toxic plants and a few that are deadly. So, you know, that. Uh, that needs to be said. But on with that said, there's also amazing amounts of people who do herb blocks and great books. So the other thing I just want to say with the wild ramps and these onions and stuff is they grow from bulbs. And if you harvest the bulbs, you're actually taking the life of the plant um, where you live. It might be abundant. I mean, who would ever consider that nodding wild onion on the California coast would ever become extinct because it grows so prolifically? But we have, we have spurned... Um, generations of herbalists and plant lovers and also in the food industry there's this you know return to the wild you go to any restaurant and there's all these wild foods that are being presented um and actually sometimes you even go into supermarkets and health food stores and you'll see big bins of ramps and fiddlehead ferns and i really want to question that because there really definitely is not enough growing out there in the wild to supply the public you know without some major restoration going on so um, every time that we dig the root of a, of a perennial, we take its life force. So in, in the springtime, the seeds are not developed. You know, you're, you're picking it when it's in flower. So when you're taking the root, you're not reseeding it. So it's just a consideration. This isn't by any means a scolding and for us not to pick them. Um, usually with the nodding wild onions, you're picking the top parts, not the root. 
But out here on the west and in, excuse me, on the east coast and in the south, where ramps are so prevalent, the wild garlic, um, you know, they've actually had to ban the harvesting in several of the southern states because, really? yeah, like in the south where they used to have the ramp festivals and stuff, they're putting a stop to them because the wild ramp populations are in terrible demise. And it's not because so much of the native people go, you know, the local people going out and, you know, having a ramp festival. It's because they're supplying supermarkets. Up here, you know, I can go into my regular, a regular supermarket. We're not even talking about, you know, quote unquote, the health food store. And there'll be ramps for sale. And I used to go in and I'd buy them and I'd take them and replant them because they belong in the woods. They don't belong in the supermarket. But that's not a good practice either because when people think they're selling, right? They think they're selling, so then they bring more they in. They buy more, right? Yeah, and it's the same. You know, I think it's just something we need to consider. Like, it's the same with the fiddlenet. Fiddleheads, they're the, um, the big ostrich ferns. Um, it's definitely it's not the root, it's the but it's the spawn-bearing frond. And every supermarket that you go into in the springtime is loaded with big boxes of these that are all coming, I think, from wild sources. Now I want to be quite honest, I haven't done the research on this, but I don't know anybody who's growing ostrich ferns for commercial purposes. I know in our area it's coming from you know the the wilds, and there's just not enough, you know, to supply that amount of markets and health food stores and fancy restaurants. So it's just something that we need to be considered about. Right, because sometimes you, you, you or say you um, want to get into wildcrafting or learning some things, and someone will tell you a certain rule, like uh, gather this many in a certain area or something. But <laughs> but really, but really, it's. Uh, this awareness of your where you live and what's there, the population, your ecology. So it's important to really learn about your environment and your bioregion and the populations before, you know, right, regular harvesting and stuff. Well, I think it's actually as critical as learning about what's safe and not safe to use, you know, as learning, you know, like we place a lot of emphasis when we teach or when we're learning about herbs, about safety, about counterindications, about how much to use. But as important is knowing the health of the plant community. And, you know, my basic guideline is this, that if it's a weedy species, weedy meaning that it grows in many habitats, it has a very prolific way of propagation, it's, you know, it's uh, propagated by lots of different kinds of insects, and that it has a wide range. It goes beyond whether or not it's prolific in my area, because right now we have to have a bigger picture than just our bioregions. We have to really think about in this bigger picture. So um, so those weedy species, actually, as I said, they're designed to be used by humans. And at this point in our, in our lifetime, and probably in our children's lifetime as well, they'll still be in abundance. But the native species that are very habitat-specific have a very select way of propagation, um, and there's still a big demand for them because there's not a lot of people growing them. Those plants we need to be very sensitive. And, you know, I'd like to put a little plug in for United Plant Savers, which is kind of, I believe, my own personal feeling is is that it's sort of the heart and soul of of the American American herbal consciousness. You know, it's it's an organization that's only about the plants. You know, it's really watching out for them. Um, and I just encourage everybody to be a member of that organization to help it grow. And and really, it's just so that we have these plants for you know future generations of plant lovers, but more importantly for the earth and the animals and the plant communities themselves. That's that's really important. Absolutely. So. 
And then just a few others, and I won't I won't go into them because there was a few other things I wanted to mention besides just the plants themselves. But in the East Coast, anybody who lives on the East Coast, the marsh marigold is coming up. It's one of the very first plants that pokes up after the snows melt. Um, when it first comes up, it's very tasty and very delicious. It's a succulent green that um, was used by all the indigenous people and the native people here. And when I first moved to this area and I didn't know anything about it, it was my neighbors that showed me how to go out and pick it. It does have some toxicity in it. It belongs to the um, the buttercup family, and so it's toxic. So you have to uh, you have to like you know do that old you kind of boil it a little bit and throw off the water and boil it again. People always question and say you know like is there anything left after that? Um, <laughs> I think you do boil off. You know we know that vitamins are very water soluble and heat soluble, but there's some stuff left, and you know it's better than getting the toxins in them. So at least to boil it a couple of times is good. Um, and then of course in the south the poke greens are coming up, and again there's those are fabulous greens. And you go, I was just down in the Ozarks last weekend, and you know everybody was getting ready to harvest their poke. Um, and so, and pokeweed also comes with the same warning that it's a wonderful spring green, but it has to be picked at a, you know, under six, six inches. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and oftentimes the people there will steam it or boil it a couple times. Um, and then my two favorite amaranth and lamb's quarters, of course, those will be poking up and those are just delicious greens. For people who are cooking for families and their children or partners who aren't really interested in wild food, though who wouldn't be, I wonder. <laughs> um, those are just those herbs taste so much like cultivated vegetables that you can hardly tell the difference, and they're abundant and weedy. So, uh, and there's many, many other plants, but those are some of the early spring greens that we're going to be seeing um, right now, and they'll continue to grow all through the season. Um, a lot of times they get a little tough as the season goes on, but you know, I still, I found ways, like I can take those old dandelion greens. I've done this so many times for my classes. You know, you find the really big, tough ones that they tell you to avoid. And then I steam them. And you can do this with any older greens, like the chicory, even the amaranth when it gets a little older. And um, and then marinate it. Make a really nice, like Italian vinaigrette with olive oil and vinegar or lemon, if you prefer. And put in some of your favorite culinary herbs, like sage and rosemary thyme, oregano, and a big dollop of honey. I would say go heavy on the honey so it's sweet and kind of tart and oily. And then marinate your greens in that. Marinate it for a few hours or overnight. And that marinate will take a big bunch of the bitterness out. Still be bitter, but it's very edible and very delicious. So um, we'll talk a little bit maybe. Um, what do you think, John? Should I talk about preparation and then talk a little bit about remedies? What would you rather do? <clears throat> that sounds wonderful. Yeah, maybe I'll just talk about I'll just talk a little bit about the various ways that we use these wild greens. Um, you know, basically, you want to you want to work with wild greens in much the same way that you do with your with your um, garden vegetables. You prepare them the same way. You clean them well. If they're woody or tough, or the stems are stringy, like if you collect your Nettle, for instance, and the stems are really stringy, they're not going to cook down. They're going to be stringy even when you steam them, just like the ends of an asparagus will be stringy no matter how much you steam it. So the preparation is really the same, the same kind of thoughtfulness that you, you look when you're, you're looking for quality that you do when you're going into your, your grocery store. Um, you're looking for that same kind of quality in the plants that you're harvesting. And the same methods of preparation, you know, if you have a, you know, stemmy stem that's very, uh, harsh or, you know, 
bakery or whatever, that's not going to usually uh, change in the cooking. Um, and then many, many of the same recipes, you know, basically all of, most of my wild food recipes, I just kind of adapt it from regular cookbooks. I, I remember one of my favorite, which is a, a wild herb casserole that I, I um, kind of designed when my kids were young because they loved the wild greens, but they also, they didn't want to just sit down and eat a big pot of nettle like I would with feta and olive oil and lemon. They wanted it to be, look kind of normal and taste normal, right? Mm-hmm. So I saw this recipe on the front of Sunset Magazine. It was kind of like this giant pancake that was filled with peaches or something. And I, I read the recipe and I thought, I could do this with my wild greens. And so that's the wild herb casserole that is so often seen in my books and stuff. And it comes out like a big fluffy souffle. Um, and so I just adapted a recipe. And, you know, occasionally it'll have a flop. But that's, you know, so long as it's good enough to eat, you can make it better the next time. <laughs> but I did want to mention a new book that's coming out. My, my good friend, Dina Falcone, has just oh. written a book, and it'll be out in June. And it's called To Forge and to Feast. And I swear, I, she asked me to do the review for it, and it's like, oh, my God, I started salivating. It has the best plant pictures in it. it they're actually drawings, but they're so incredibly botanically correct and beautiful. And then Dina is a master at wild food cooking, so we, we want to encourage people to keep an eye on that book, To Forge and to Feed, The Celebration of Life by Dina Falcone. And I'll surely interview her when it comes out, too. So. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really good. It's so good. You know, I just want to mention this for all those young writers out there who are thinking of writing their first or book. Dina did a startup on, what's that, what is that startup? Uh, oh, website? a Kickstarter. Kickstarter, and she sold over $100,000 worth. Yeah, I donated, or not, or I invested, rather. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was just that we were all so thrilled for her. You know, it's a great book, and that's partly why she did so well. But it's just, a, it's just great to know that everybody's out there helping one another to succeed. So um, anyway, she's going to be feeding as well with the Forge and the Feast. So how I do this wild food casserole, I'm just going to quickly share it because it's very simple. Um, and also because you can do any of the wild greens that we talked about with this. So I take a fourth of a cup of butter or olive oil, and I put it in a 6 by 10 baking pan, like one of those nice glass baking dishes. And you turn your oven on to 425, and you put that butter, you know, put your pan with the butter in just to melt the butter. And then while that's melting, you're going to saute an onion. It can be a wild onion, a cultivated onion. Saute it till it's nice and brown, and then you take, you know, like four or five cups or more, if you're like me, you put more in, of your wild greens, and you saute those all. You want to, you know, clean them and make sure they're all chopped and nice, and it can be combinations. It can be just amaranth or lamb's quarter, mallow, nettle. Just saute it all nicely, and then you're going to, you're going to put that in the pan with the butter, and then in your blender, you take a cup of milk or water if you don't like to use milk or goat's milk or soy milk or whatever kind of milk you like. Or <laughs> and then four eggs. And then I use about a three-fourths cup of a whole wheat pancake mix. You can use flour, but I usually use a pancake mix, an all-natural one, because it has that natural leavening in it. It makes it really fluffy. And I just put that in the blender, and I buzz it all together just for a couple minutes. You can also be creative and add all kinds of seasonings to that. You can add just salt and pepper if you want, but you can add curry and Italian. And then you pour that over your, your, your um, steamed greens and then put some grated cheese 
the type of cheese you use will make a big difference. So you can see this is a really not for people who have cheese and milk allergies or don't eat dairy. <laughs> right. But that's what I said. It was designed for my kids and my family members, for people in their first introduction to wild food foraging because you gave them a lot of herbs, but it was camouflaged. And then, and then you just bake it for 30 to 45 minutes like a souffle. You just put for, at that 40, 425 degree. And like a souffle, you put your knife in the center when it comes out clean. It's a really, a really delicious and beautiful dish with lots of creative possibilities. Mm. Um, and then the other method that you can use for making, uh, using lots of wild greens are the herb paste, pestos. Um, when we think of pesto, we usually think of that wonderful traditional pesto mix, you know, with basil. But pesto just basically means herb paste. And you can make medicinal blends. I mean, what a wonderful way to give medicine to somebody who has liver congestion or skin problems or even hormonal problems, you can formulate your, your herbs so long as you're using fresh green herbs and you can put them right in this paste and then hmm. instead of having to take tablets or teas, you just eat this stuff, you know, it's so good. So, you know, usually, again, there's about, for every person who makes a pesto, there's a recipe, you know, it's one of those very creative things that I don't even think, you know, grand, our grandmothers really even had a recipe. They just put olive oil and they put garlic and they blended that up, and then, you know, to taste, and then they packed in their basil or whatever herbs they wanted, and they added um, uh, some nuts, usually pine nuts, and, and then Parmesan, and that was the basic recipe. But people can get so creative with this, but my basic recipe is, you know, to use one to two cups of olive oil and to around three cloves of garlic. And then I, I like pine nuts, but I just want to put a warning out about pine nuts. Pine nuts are delicious. The, one of the warnings is they're very expensive, <laughs> So you have to, you know, uh, I don't use pine nuts a lot in my pestos as much as I'd like. The other is that there's a cheaper pine nut that's on the market that's from China, and it's actually very toxic. It's a non-edible pine nut that should be highly avoided. Um, anyway, so, hmm. um, and then, so I, you can use walnuts or cashews or, wa- or um, almonds. Um, so then you just put uh, about a half a cup of your nuts in there. They can be combinations of nuts and you blend till creamy, and then you add your paste, your herbs, and you can use, as I said, just any of those herbal combinations. You can use mallows, and you can use nettle, amaranth, and uh, lamb's quarter, chickweed. Of course, each herb that you use is going to give a different flavor. Oh, and I forgot to mention the mustards, the garlic mustards. Oh, how could I forget those? <laughs> so in any of the foods that we're speaking about, but specifically in the pestos, they add a wonderful flavor. Um, and then... And then um, you can make it even taste better by adding roughly a half a cup of, of grated Parmesan. And then you taste and you go, oh, it needs a little more garlic. It needs a little Bragg's Aminos, you know. It needs a little, um, maybe I need to blend some rosemary and thyme and sage and oregano. I love to use those herbs in there. So, um, so much creativity. And then, of course, you could freeze it. I, I froze, this is hard to believe, I froze so much pesto last year that it's like I wish I could just, give it away. It's like Robert and I have been eating pesto almost every day now for six months. You, you better watch it. You're going to have uh, droves of people driving up your driveway. They can come. Can I, I want them to pesto? come. I'm so hungry to see. I'm hungry for green plants and I'm hungry for people. <laughs> Put my pesto on the people and invite them in. But, come on yeah. in. Um, soups, like you were saying, you've been eating lots of soups and the stir fries, but you know, it's, I just will say this last thing about bringing those wild foods into the kitchen is that this is the best medicine. It's, it's what we eat. And 
it's the way that people have eaten for literally generations. And when, even when you introduce just a few of the wild greens into your daily foods, your body gets happy, you know, it, and it's a great thing to do. If you have children, to go out on an herb walk with them and to collect, you know, the dandelions and make sure that the gardens that you're collecting from, of course, aren't sprayed. Um, there's a little bit of things that you have to be mindful of. You know, as I said, if you're not used to plant ID and you're not familiar with these plants, even these common wild plants, excuse me, these common weedy plants, then find an herb walk in your area or join us at one of these conferences. They're happening all over the country and you can learn so much. So, John, do I have time to speak a little bit about remedies? Or should uh, yes, I have to certainly, please, please. Yeah. You know, every season, as you know, brings with it its own gifts and its own challenges. And, of course, spring, the greatest gift is we feel alive again. You know, the long, the long sun, the sunlight, you know, um, in the winter times here, the sun will set about 4 o'clock in the winter, mm. and we have long, long evenings. And so when spring comes and that sun is starting to brighten up the day and you can actually feel the sap rising in your in the trees around you and in your own blood even so there's a, a vitality of spring for certain and just the very just the very fact that winter is broken and we've like passed and we've like survived it there's kind of the survival sense when winter passes and like many of you i love winter with all my heart but you know usually about a month ago i'm ready for it to be gone <laughs> <laughs> i'm never ready for spring to be gone you know it's always such a joyful time um, but it also brings with it its challenges, you know, and oftentimes people, as they come into spring, they're worn out and tired. The systems feel sluggish, um, slowed down. There's often a lot of skin problems that happen and allergies. That's another thing we see. It's also the season when people often get sunburned because they've been out of the sun for so long. So there's a sensitivity with the skin. Um, sometimes, usually we don't see... Uh, so much depression and stuff in the spring as we do in the winter time because again with that return of the light people's uh, cycles are being reset and it's almost like the sun brings joy with it but there still is a residual depression that you still see that people sometimes will carry into the spring so um and also because it's again it's a season of change the, the weather begins to really change and it can be very fickle so we can have one day here that we consider warm that might be 65 and then the next day it's, we have an ice storm again and that kind of change is very challenging for people. So there's a lot of uh, immune issues that come up. So those are, kind of, those are some of the things that we see happening in the springtime that are common, what I call kind of common spring and cyclic um, problems. And many of the plants that we talked about are those plants that we would use. So, for instance, um, with any of the skin issues or the, uh, the liver congestion, you know, that would be seen with digestion if you're, you're not digesting well, you get a lot of gas when, you, when you're eating or you're what they call the bowel transit. If you eat what goes through, you know, what goes through, it takes a long time. The joke is always, you know, you can eat your corn or eat your beets and if you should see it, you know, the next morning. And if you don't, that means you're, you have slow bowel transit. It's actually a really great way to tell um, if you can't tell any other way. <laughs> but uh, many of the herbs that, we're ta- that we've been talking about are specific. They're the medicines that have been used, and not surprisingly. So making a good uh, burdock or dandelion tea, the roots is what I would suggest, you know, burdock root, uh, a young, fresh, either um, second-year root that would be very well-formed this time of year. It's a great time to dig it. Um, your fresh dandelion roots, you can make a great tincture with that, just chopping up those roots, you know, cleaning them, processing them, chopping them up well, putting them in a quart jar, 
filling the filling them up about halfway with the roots, and the rest of the way with a, a good alcohol like a brandy or vodka or gin. Um, that's a really great way. If people have really sluggish digestion, um, you might want to add yellow dock root, a, a nice fresh young yellow dock that's coming up. It's again a, a perennial um, that will be showing up right about now, and that root is really good for sluggish digestion and slow bowel transit. Um, Tonics, this is just a great time, you know, without thinking of them as medicine, but what they do is they help with the immune system. They help with that kind of worn out, tired feeling that people often have as spring comes upon us. And those would, again, be some of the herbs that we mentioned, the nettle, the self-heal, the plantain, definitely red clover. That's one of my favorite teas, by the way, nettle, red clover, plantain, and Mm self-heal. You mix that with a little mint. You can add a little fresh lemon juice and honey if you want to make it really delicious and drink several cups of that a day. Um, How long would you steep that for, Rosemary? Well, you know, there's there's different thoughts on that. You know, um, if you want to make a really good strong tea, it's best to let it steep for at least an hour. I like to let my tea steep overnight, actually, whenever I can. Um, You know, I just usually use, like, an ounce, maybe a little bit more of that. I put it in a quart jar and pour boiling water over it, put a lid on tightly and let it sit overnight. Mm. Just because you're, you, what you want to do when you make your infusions is you really want to draw out the vitamins and minerals and all that nice potency that's in the plant. But all of the plants that I just mentioned there are very, very highly water-soluble, so even an hour you're going to get a good tea. For those people who are new to this, I would just suggest, you know, take the same plant, let one sit overnight in a quart jar, just the way I just described, Make another one and infuse it for an hour and see if, see what you can see is the difference. That's the best way to learn. Yeah. Try and experiment and, um, you know, really basic. And, you'll, you know, depending on who you study and listen with, you can get lots of opinions of how other people think things should be done. But one of the beautiful things about herbalism is, is that far more than a science, it's an art. Or it's a living science is what I like to say. It's not really defined yeah. so much by rules as it is by guidelines. I, I, what, I see that a lot. A lot of people will wonder exactly how much of this should I use, exactly how much of this should I use, and da da da. And it's just like, well, you know, just to experiment and learn. And it takes time. <laughs> you can't you can't mess up. And uh, you know, if you stick to certain you know guidelines, as you said, and uh, and uh, that's the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. You know, there's just different minds just learn things differently. Like my husband is very Virgo, and he likes to have exactly. He oh. likes things. He likes to know, you know. And there's, I've known that with my, learned that with from my students, you know, like my very general way of saying, we just take a pinch of that and, uh, you know, and use the parts method. And they're looking at me and I can see their eyes kind of starting to spin in their heads. And it's like, oh, that's when I ask, like, my friend Donna or Nancy, who are much more uh, good with figures than I am. And they just step in and they, they can do that, you know. So that's the thing. There's just so many beautiful ways of working with plants. Well, that's what was so amazing when I was, when we were filming Rosemary's Remedies last summer, because uh, from, from, from you having books and having things labeled <laughs> out, I thought you were more of an exact person. But then here you are in the kitchen, just throwing this together, throwing that together. And what was beautiful about it is you have these books that have these exactness you know, for those folks. But in, the, in those videos, you were also teaching oh. people how to get in touch with their, with their uh, you know, explorer, inner explorer and, and experimenter to, uh, you know, kind of move from the books <laughs> to just experimenting. And that was beautiful. Well, you know, Joan, when I, I had to learn to do that, both as a teacher and also because as a formulator, because early on in the days when I did my traditional blends, you know, I just did them by, I knew just how much to put in there. You know, I just used, 
I knew. I just knew it in myself, and I was almost always right with it. Like if I would take something and put it on the scale, I mean, I would be so close to being exactly at one ounce. It was almost mm-hmm. magical. But when when I had to pass when I passed those formulas on, I had to put down the right formulas. And working with numbers and figures is so hard for me. I just don't have a mind for that at all. And so, you know, I had to have a scale, and it was like, oh my god. But I, you know, so it again. I just I just love the different ways that we can work with the plants, and I honor all the ways. It's fun. But definitely for me, I, I just go someplace inside of me that knows those measurements and knows how to do it um, without the figures and the numbers, which I'm a little dyslexic, so that dyslexia really shows up in numbers. In fact, Robert's always correcting me. Something might be $100. And I go, look, it's, a, it's $10. And he goes, well, try adding a couple zeros, Rosemary. <laughs> like, oh. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I did want to mention one other remedy that comes up a lot for people, right, that's for us very seasonal thing as with allergies and hay fever, really hits people pretty big time. We all have our favorite remedies, you know, for me I want to say that when I work with people who have allergies and hay fever, I try to work um, around the seasons with them, not just when the hay fever or allergy season is coming up, because it's really uh, has much more to do with how the whole system is working rather than just, oh, there's an allergen and my body is now overreacting. So if you can really um, pay attention to the immune system and balancing the body, strengthening the body through the seasons when the allergies aren't activated, you're going to have much better results. But I have seen a lot of people respond well to reishi and rhodiola. Mm-hmm. Um, those, you know, there's very specific herbs for the uh, lungs and the bronchioles. Nettle is another one that people have a really good response to. But I've just seen over and over again when people are having, they'll come to the mountain for classes, they'll start to get an allergy because there's a plant they're not familiar with, it's a new region for them. And I just give them a reishi and or rhodiola sometimes, and it really just will knock it out in, you know, within a few minutes. I won't say that works 100%, but it's one of those 80% remedies that almost always works, enough to pass it on anyway. Hmm. So, Great. Um, yeah. So... Um, so we've talked all about uh, various plants of the spring, um, some recipe ideas, how simple it is to incorporate in diets. We have talked about a few remedies to kind of transition people from uh, winter to spring. And um, now uh, I was wondering maybe getting in a little bit of into uh, maybe a little bit of uh, how people can kind of make that segue to their backyard and backyard herbalism and how that connects to a bigger picture. Well, that's a great question, you know, because we were talking about all the backyard herbs. We didn't wander off the, you know, the common path, our our backyard. um, You know, we didn't go into the the more specific habitats and stuff where we have those native species. Um, And we we tend to think of most of those herbs that we were speaking of as our backyard, as our backyard herbs, as our, as our, um, you know, native plants here. But in fact, most of those plants were brought over here by the, by, by the early settlers. And some of them by not so much the early settlers. They're, they're more recent introductions. Many of the plants that we've commonly used in our Materia Medica um, were introduced here, in, were introduced to us. So, you know, I always like to start off by saying that I'm definitely a backyard herbalist. I love and believe that what we have around us is our medicine. And we need to know it because... If we can't get off the hill, if we can't get into town, if there comes a time, you know, when we have to really depend on our own community for our health and well-being, we can. So 
there is so much truth in that. But I also like to point out that we are a global community and that ever since the very beginning, hundreds of years ago, plant lovers traveled around trading herbs, learning from one another. It was never isolated. You know, even the bush people, you know, they traded, or our native people in this country, they would, they would travel to different parts of the country and trade the herbs and trade their shells, you know, and trade their knowledge. So that has been going on since forever. So to limit what we know, you know, and our ability to reach out is kind of silly, I think, actually. And even in American herbalism, you know, one of the things I love about it the most is it's very eclectic. It borrows from the best of the traditions around the world. Our Western tradition is based on the North American plants, but also European plants, Ayurvedic plants from India, plants from China. You know, there's this very eclectic um, body of information that American Western herbalists embrace. It's unique in the world, and it's actually one of the things that I think is one of the best things about our medicine. And that's, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to then try to foster is that mm-hmm. we've created a very strong community, a regional, bioregional community. It started back in the 1960s by small classes that helped, happened around the country, by these small gatherings that started happening in our backyards, um, and that spread out and grew. And to this point in this country, like all across this country now, we can find these amazing green events. They're miraculous, actually, right. because not even 40 years ago, you could not have a conference and expect anybody to show up. They would have just looked at you like you're nuts, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, herbalism was so completely underground, like in the mid-1960s, even up into the late 1960s, when it slowly started to emerge and blossom. So we really fostered a beautiful community here, um, and we fostered some very amazing concepts about, you know, backyard herbalism and bioregional herbalism, herbalism, pardon me, and also even about plant conservation and, you know, plant awareness. That's new. We've really helped to plant a global seed with our awareness of these plants. Um, and, and, you know, and, and their health and their demise. Um, but one of the things that we haven't, it's not that we haven't done it because we're in the process of doing it, is reaching out and really learning and spreading and creating a global family. And mm-hmm. partly why we want to do that, and partly why we've created this event to do that, the International Earth Symposium, is because it fosters awareness. You know, it's how we learn. We learn by, we learn by exchanging ideas with people who have different ideas than we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like one of the things I get worried about is when I talk today, I, mostly I'm talking to people who I've talked to before, they know what I'm talking about or they believe what I'm talking about. It's, you know, their roots too, mostly. Um, and so there's not a lot of exchange of ideas. But when I'm talking to people who have a very different belief system than I do or also a very different set of plants that they use, um, or they're coming from a whole different mindset, like they're very scientific or they're very politically different than I might be, I learn so much. I love and engage in those kinds of conversations. It's where we spark and where ideas kind of fly. And so in part, that's what we tried to do at this event at the International Earth Symposium. And it's brilliant because it brings herbalists together from all different walks, from the shaman, the folklore, the community herbalist, the bioregional herbalist, the community practitioner, to the, to the scientist, to the, a person who speaks in you know, the chemical terms, um, to this whole gamut. And it does it in a very honoring way and also bringing people from around the world. Now, we are still very strong in our North American um, presence there because right. it's held here. But there's usually about 13 other com- company, uh, countries that are mm-hmm. represented, and every year our international participants get more. 
So, um, you know, our hope is, is at some point we can every year have people from all around the world represented in the classes, but a lot of it is the funding. It costs a lot of money to hold well, those. Of- <laughs> you, you know, something I realized, Rosemary, was um, well, the first time I went to a conference, and um, I was kind of blown away because I uh, there was all these teachers, all these people who knew so much about herbs, and I was just kind of a beginner starting out, but... Whatever happens, whenever one of these I've been to, and so many of them, they're always so welcoming and inclusive. Um, even beginners, um, you, you like even my first time I went when I d- was just trying to figure out how to make a tincture, um, I felt like I was part of that community. Like I felt like I was welcomed. And something like the International Herb Symposium can sound big, can sound can sound like it's uh, maybe not for everyone um even listening even someone who's who's just like oh you know I do, what's the right way to make a tea or whatever but the thing is the reality is for all experience levels and you're going to just feel this like oh wow these people are like me and 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 just knowing that strengthens you inside and strengthens your path and you know and and uh and I think it's just wonderful for that Thank you, Jen. Well, I think that's the thing I love the most about going to these events. And I would, I would say that that very warm, welcoming, positive, um, embracing feeling that you were speaking about, I've had every event I've ever gone to. You know, I've never been to an herbal event where I just didn't feel the sincerity and warmth and kindness of the people. And it's one of the things I've loved about my work so much. I mean, obviously, I'm impassioned by plants. I'm impassioned by this opportunity to be to serve the plants in my lifetime this time. But as much as I love the, as I love the plants, I love people who love plants. I mean, they, to me, they're like kind of the cream of the crop. They're they're one of those groups of of human beings that are. I mean, there's there's cranky ones, there's mean ones, there's all of that. But mostly, there's these just wonderful people who are, you know, sincere about wanting to to bring goodness to this earth again. You know, to really feed the goodness, to to feed that light that is mm. life on this earth you know so it's i think coming to them even just for the fun i mean they're yeah. all so much fun there's uh. herb walks and dancing and henna and you know and there's all kinds of hands-on activities mask making and you know it's joyful i mean so it's fun for that and then you go and you learn all this great stuff and then and then you're dancing like you know till one in the morning at this big ball I mean, and, with, really... and, and, and rosemary will share her special brew that night i'm not going to say any more <laughs> than that i'm not saying any more than that <laughs> Yeah, we make up 25 gallons of uh, kava chai tea. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I know. And, you know, it's brewed. We cook it, actually, in the Central Vermont Hospital. It's actually, it's, actually, um, <laughs> it's just so amazing, the whole thing. It's pretty awesome. Um, now, so, now, for this, for the 11th, um, who are, uh, just off the top of your head, some of the uh, speakers you're having from? Well, we have a bunch of new ones this time. One of the things I really am trying to do is to which I try to do all the time, but I, I'm making a conscious effort, is trying to bring in um, a new, new teachers. You know, some of our old favorites, of course, because you've just got to see David Hoffman or Rocia Alicorn for Ecuador and Anne McIntyre from England, you know, Matthew Wood and David Winston. You know, those are some of our, and Susan Weed and Deb Soul and the list goes on, Pam Montgomery. Those are some of our fabulous, you know, favorites. But I also, again, it's exposure to new, and so... Um, some of the new ones that we have coming in are, are Dr. Dawa Rydak. He's a Tibetan doctor and healer. And uh, um, Patrice de Bonval, who's one of France's most well-known herbalists. And Michelle Lyons, who's extremely well-known in Ireland as a mm. practitioner. 
Julia Graves, who's from Germany, she taught at the last one. Um, uh, some of our young herbalists, some of our shining stars, like Guido Massey, who I must say, who I've actually, he's from Italy and has taught here in the United States for many years. I've actually highlighted him a number of years because he's just so brilliant and young. I'm trying to bring some of these uh, young herbalists that also really um, are like I consider the old masters. Phyllis Light, who's our South, the Appalachian herbalist who represents that Appalachian um, tradition. Uh, and a woman from a woman from Iceland. Uh, wow. I can't really uh, say her name. It's, <laughs> um, Anna Rosa Rosenborski from Ireland. That's so, good. Yeah, Dr. Zi Zhen from China. The other thing that's really exciting is we also have a veterinar- holistic veterinarian track for uh, veterinarians and animal lovers. That's mm-hmm. um, all taught by holistic veterinarians who want to bring the green energy to the larger. Um, holistic, uh, to the larger veterinarian community. So there's a whole list of uh, wonderful, wonderful veterinarian practitioners who will be there. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It really definitely is a grand event. It's, you know, like, I know sometimes it's overwhelming for people, but it's, it's, there are people who have come back every single year. Um, I, I, I was amazed, uh, my, the first time I went to that and, uh, how approachable everyone is like you think like oh because because you know you, you you have these books of these people that are like your herbal rock stars you know <laughs> and then and then, so and then for you know and then you're like and everyone's kind of hanging out you know and it's it's so easy you know it's so easy to to approach and talk to people and you know ask some questions or just introduce yourself and i i, I was uh you know, and, and in a way, that openness in the herbal community really led the way to, you know, what we've been able to do at Learning Herbs and, and uh, because everyone's so, uh, you know, has been so welcoming and open. So, Rosemary Gladstar, thank you so much for joining us tonight. That was an incredible so honor. Incredible honor. I just love I, I had such a good time last summer at Sage Mountain. It's great oh, to reconnect here. It was so fun, really. And thank you for all the listeners. It's really lovely. I wish you could all come up and we could go for an herb walk and then have some fresh nettle pesto and then red clover and nettle and plantain tea. But people and are always welcome. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention, too, for Rosemary, uh, Sage Mountain, sagemountain.com, correct? Yes. And, and uh, to check out Rosemary's site and all the things she's got going on. For absolutely. Thank so Hi. thank you. And again, the International Herb Symposium, June 28th to the 30th, 2013, at internationalherbsymposium.com. See you next time. Visit learningherbs.com for free ebooks, courses, and monthly lessons. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and Wildcraft, an herbal adventure game. Herb Mentor Radio is produced for herbmentor.com, our community mentoring site. Herb Mentor Radio is copyright learningherbs.com, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it.